Okay, <clears throat> I'm glad you're here. Uh, we're going to talk about something today, uh, which is one of my favorite topics, which is the whole idea of the Torah being uh, black fire written on white fire. And this is, um, is a very esoteric concept, but hopefully we'll make it very real and um, just, just uh, relate to it in, 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 in I, I, I hope, very, very practical ways and show how it relates um, to this week's Parsha Vayichi and get into that as well. So, so in order to really understand this concept of uh, the Torah being black fire on white fire, uh, let's just, just describe the basics of that. And again, just trying to make what is a very, a, a very kind of like mind-expanding concept into something that's just very concrete. So, so what we have to understand is what we're talking about is the black ink written on the cloth, the, 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 the paper of the Torah, if you will. It's made from animal skin, but, but, but what we have to understand is that the, the white part of the Torah is not the paper that the ink is placed on. In other words, spiritually speaking, there's a dynamic to it and a power to it that... Um, that, that has to be uh, understood. So it has a, 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 an integrity to it as well. And just to, just to give you a, a sense of what I'm talking about, our tradition is that there are 600,000 letters in the Torah and that there are 600,000 core Jewish souls as well. And, um, and that every Jew has a letter that corresponds to them in the Torah. But when people have counted the letters of the Torah they found that there aren't 600,000 letters in the Torah. And so there's certain explanations that are given because we accept that there are 600,000 uh, letters in the Torah. So then the question becomes, well, how do we arrive at that number if it's deeper and a little more complicated than just simply counting the letters? So there are two main avenues in trying to understand this. One is, which is definitely true, um, that each letter of the Torah is actually made up of several letters. So we, we, we know that if you've, if you've studied the letters themselves, you know that. For instance, like the letter, Dal, the letter Hey is actually the letter Dalid with a Yud on the bottom there in the corner. So that's just one example. There are many, many, many examples in the Torah how letters are actually constructed from different letters put together. So in this way, you can get to the number 600,000, and there's no problem whatsoever. However, there's actually another explanation, which is that we're really counting the white spaces in between the words. So this shows you that the white spaces actually have a, a, a great importance and are in a way counted as forms of letters. And that the white space of the Torah, the white fire of the Torah, actually is this infinite realm which actually contains all the letters. So, so now when we look at the Torah, we realize, wow, there's something very different going on. It's this multi-dimensional thing. It's not just this two-dimensional flat piece of paper, but there's actually realms that we're looking into when we've got a Torah scroll here. Now let me try to explain it even better. 
You see, the black fire, the actual letters of the Torah, represents that which is revealed. And the white fire, the white spaces of the Torah, represent those aspects which, which exist but haven't been manifest in this realm or this dimension yet. Meaning to say they're really part of the infinite. They're part of heaven, if you will, or just the, just the utmost reaches of the universe. And they haven't come down completely yet. Okay. <clears throat> but they're there. But they're there. And we exist within the environment of the, of the black fire and the white fire. Because as we know, we live in a world where there are certain parts are revealed and there are certain parts which exist, but we, they haven't been revealed. We, don't, we, we can't see them with the naked eye. And this seems to me very um, practical and even scientific. Um, and what I mean by that is that many people, like the Greeks were famous, uh, maybe it's a bit of a generalization, but were famous for a more rational take that if I can't see it with my eye, then it doesn't exist. And that all the rest belongs to the realm of superstition. But as science advanced, for instance, let's say someone has that very sort of like meat and potatoes, practical kind of like uh, take on life, which is if I can't see it with my eyes, it can't possibly exist. Well, then all of a sudden, not too long ago, you know, you know, a couple hundred years ago, whatever it was, people invented the microscope. And all of a sudden they were like, whoa, there are all these incredibly tiny things which have existed all along that I never saw with my eye. And they were there all along. And then you've got other things like radio waves. Wow, so you can't see the radio waves coming into your radio when you turn on your radio, but they're going on all the time. And they're there. So, like I say, scientifically speaking, there's a scientific basis for us to understand that just because something can't be seen with the naked eye doesn't mean it's not there. Well, okay, there are giant palaces of things that we can't see with our eye. But now all of a sudden people start to use a different vocabulary when they describe it. Now they start to use terms like mysticism and, and spirituality and things like that. But if it's there, it's there. You can call it whatever you like. But if it's there, it's part of our reality. That, that's all there is to it. So we say, of course, it's there. And we've got rich descriptions of it and understandings of the mechanics of it. Right? But this is, science has not yet caught up to this level of description of the universe yet. You know, in quantum physics and things like that, uh, with string theory and whatnot, they posit whole dimensions that they can't quite quantify or describe. But you should know, even in the realm of hardcore science, like, like physics, they're talking about dimensions that can't be seen all of the time. So, so really, you see that the, the concept of religion and quote-unquote religion's take on, on the supernatural, quote-unquote, is like getting very, very close, or, or science is catching up to what we've been saying all along. Um, I just say that because one has to make that mental adjustment and has to close the gap and can't have like an unsophisticated understanding of what it is that the Torah has been saying. 
because to dismiss it and to call it, well, whatever it is, spirituality or whatever it is, as opposed to science, well, that's going to be harder and harder to make those type of generalizations as, as science catches up to Torah. Uh, or, let me put it another way, as we more accurately describe reality. Okay? So, so anyway, getting back to this concept of black fire on white fire, black fire, the print, the written letters in the Torah is that which has been revealed, and the white fire, the white spaces in the Torah, have a dimensionality to them. That's the aspects that haven't been revealed but which exist. They haven't sort of come down and become manifest yet. Now let's just talk about that for a moment also because all of this will help us to understand what's, uh, what's going on in the Torah. We have to understand also this concept of how God created the world and that God took his infinite light or a, a portion of it, an aspect of it, the, 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 the outer trappings of it, if you will, um, and he condensed this light until it became physicality or materiality. So, um, you know, there, there are different helpful ways of, of kind of um, understanding that. Uh, I'll say one quickly, but I, I want to get to another one. But, but I always like to try to just give over just because it's, I, I, I think, something everyone can relate to. The idea of the H2O molecule. You have water vapor which you can't see, like imagine the steam coming out of a tea kettle. You can't really even see it after a while, after it reaches a certain height. But it's there, it's water vapor, and the molecule is H2O. Now, as that slows down, it becomes water. And water looks completely different. And the molecule there, though, is exactly the same, it's H2O. It's the same molecule. And then as that slows down and becomes colder, it becomes ice. Again, it looks completely different from the outside. But what is it? H2O, it's the same molecule. So in other words, you have something going from gas or vapor to water to ice. So this is the idea. Now imagine God's light with this same type of construct where you have something that's just light and just like infinite, but it gets squeezed down and more and more compressed until it becomes the physical manifest universe. Do you understand? Now what's what, what's important about this conceptualization is that, first of all, it mirrors physics, and I'll get to that in a moment, but what's important about this is that you're seeing that it's one spectrum from the spiritual to the material is one line. And it's not, I repeat, not two separate paradigms where you have the physical or the material on one side and the spiritual on the other side. And one is like real and I can touch it, and the other one is hocus pocus. That's, that's not what's going on. It's one continuous spectrum. Said a different way, materiality is condensed spirituality. Okay? So that's, that's another way of understanding it. Now let's just take it from the physics point of view. When Einstein talks about E equals MC square, and he talks about energy becoming mass, that's what we're talking about. Energy, which is just like light, if you will, right? That's, you can't really see it. It's energy. But energy can, there's a, there's a formula where energy actually becomes something called mass, which means something concrete. All right, so now 
you go, okay, but still that's two different things. How does energy become mass? Because that's what we're talking about. The Kabbalistic term is called tzimtzum. That's the condensation, the compressing of energy into physical matter. So the Nobel Prize this past year was won by scientists who isolated what was called the God particle. Now the God particle is not is not, there, there was no spirituality, it was a joke, that term. It was not meant to be anything spiritual whatsoever. They said because it's so, and they didn't use this term, but it was so gosh darn hard to find, mm-hmm. right? That's why they called it the God particle. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a joke. It didn't have anything to do with God or anything like that. But, irony of ironies, it has everything to do with our understanding of how God created the world. Because it's not, first of all, a particle. That's a misnomer. It's a field of energy, okay? And it's like an energy band, if you can kind of think of something like uh, just horizontal. And now, imagine energy. Energy at a certain point has to pass through something in order to become physicalized. And that's what they found. That's the Higgs boson. That's, that's what it is. That's a, the, the God particle, also known as the Higgs boson, whatever, whatever they call that. But anyway, that's, that, that's what it is. It's this field of energy that energy passes through and acquires mass, which is exactly what we've been saying for thousands of years. This is what we've been talking about. So when we talk about science still catching up to Kabbalah, <laughs> Torah, Right? That, that, this is what we're talking about. Okay, so now I want to show you how you see this in the Torah itself. This is, the, this is the transition from the white fire to the black fire. Okay? Now I want to give you an example of this. Where you actually see, you see every once in a while we can say, oh, I caught you. <laughs> I, there, there, there. There, you just, you just went from white fire to black fire. You just went from black fire to white fire. Because we want to catch a moment where the words are, so to speak, like going, like jumping, jumping uh, quantum energy levels, right? Where we can actually isolate instances where white fire, where that transition is happening. So let me give you one, um, a classic one. I don't know that it's ever been presented in the way that I'm presenting it, but I think this is, as, as seems pretty obvious that that's what's going on to me, okay? So this is at the end of Parshas B'Shalach, okay? So in the Torah, this is, um, if you want to see it, it's uh, chapter 17, um, verse 16. And what it's talking about, and I mention this pasuk, this verse in the Torah all the time, um, just because it's so rich, um, but it's very, uh, uh, very emblematic of this white fire, black fire discussion. So it's talking about how Amalek, which represents the, the enemy of Israel, the, the forces of evil, if you will, how, how Amalek is, is attacking, is waging war against God, essentially. And, that, um, and, and it uses the phrase, it says that... Um, that the hand of God is that for for the hand is on the throne of God, okay. And Hashem maintains a war against Amalek from generation to generation. 
So, so it's talking about how a Malik is exists in this world, this energy exists in this world, and it's fighting against God. Now, the key words here are the throne of God. And the, that, that means like, when we talk about the throne of God, we're talking about God being made, made manifest in this world. And when it's written here in the Torah, really the way the throne of God should be uh, written is Kisei Hashem. Kisei meaning throne. And Hashem Yudke Vavke. That's the spelling out of the name of God. That's how it should appear in the black fire, in the text itself. Right? That means the revealed aspect. But because it's talking about the fact that that evil still exists in this world, evil stops the full revelation of godliness in this world. Remember, it's all one power. We're only talking about God. Um, There aren't two powers. There's not Satan fighting against Santa Claus, right? It's not like we don't have like, you know, this concept of two powers. There's just one power. But we're in this evolution toward perfection. And our job is basically to work through the negative forces in this world in order to arrive the world at its destined journey toward perfection. Okay, so that's, that's what evil is. It's not an independent power fighting against God. Okay? Um, nonetheless, while we're still on the road to perfection, which we are, this energy called Amalek exists. And while it exists, we don't write the words, the throne of God, with all of the letters in black fire. So the Aleph of the word Kisei is missing. So what's written in black fire in the text is just the word case. We still know, we still know that it means throne, but the word throne itself is not written completely. The Aleph is missing. Then when it comes to the next word, Hashem, just the first two letters of Hashem are written, but not the last two letters of Hashem's name are written. Again, the full revelation of godliness is not completely revealed yet while evil still exists. So, so now let's think this through a little bit more. Just the Yud and the He of Hashem's name, which represents the highest aspects. Whenever you think of the name of God, you always want to think of it going from top to bottom. So you have Yud, Yud, which represents the highest realms, then He underneath that, then Vav underneath that, then He underneath that. That spells out the name of God. So the Yud and the He exist in black fire in the revealed sense, because in the heavens... There is no evil. There is no revelation of evil at all. The heavens are fixed. That's why the Yud and the He is written in black fire. Because that aspect has been revealed. But that's in the upper dimensions. The Vav and the He, which represents where we live right now, there, it's not written in black fire. Because that complete revelation of Hashem in this dimension has not yet been revealed yet. So, so now you're seeing 
how the black fire and the white fire work over here. In other words, do we say that God is not perfect until evil is vanquished? No, we don't say that. God is perfect. God is perfect right now. He's put humanity and this realm on a course toward perfection. But that does, there's no imperfection in God. This is our work and our challenge in order to do. So in other words, listen very carefully now. It's not that when we get it together and we sort of like arrive at the destined place that, that we have to get to, right? Which we will get to. Only then will God become perfect and only then will it say, Kisei Hashem. No. God is already perfect. But we have our work to do to reveal God's perfection in this realm. So here's what I'm saying. That the last letter of the word Kisei, the Aleph, which is absent in the black fire, certainly exists in the white fire. The Vav and the He, the completion of God's name, which we don't see manifest yet here, in the black fire in the revealed realms, certainly exists in the world because God is already perfect. So that Vav and the He exists in the white fire, not yet in the black fire. Meaning to say, again, the black fire is that which is revealed. The white fire is that which is there, but hasn't yet become revealed. So when we talk about the throne of Hashem, it's complete in the heavens, but it hasn't become manifest on the earth yet. That's why in the black fire, in the written text, it's written in this broken, imperfect way. Kes ka, instead of kisei Hashem. But the Kisei Hashem certainly exists, but you have to go to the white fire in order to understand that. Meaning to say you have to have a broader understanding of the totality of God and his perfection in the universe to understand that it already exists. We won't be manufacturing it when it happens. We'll be revealing it, that which is already there. Okay? So this is, again... Now, getting back to our model about energy becoming mass, right? Um, water vapor becoming ice, if you will. So there is now, I would like to suggest another paradigm which parallels these, which is us bringing down the white fire and making it extant in the black fire. Meaning to say, to take the spiritual potentials that exist and to make them manifest in this world in a concrete way. Okay? So is, I, I, am I communicating? Okay. Now, now, interestingly, if you look, let's now turn to another case example of black fire and white fire. Okay? And that's this week's Parsha. This is Vayechi. So Vayechi is really interesting on a lot of different levels, okay? A lot of different levels. Because we're talking about, Vayechi means um, the life of Yaakov, Jacob, our father, okay? So, but this is, you're going to see like all, everything that we've been talking about right now, you're going to see now all coming together on this word, okay? So, 
So Vayechi is sort of striking because this is the Parsha that's describing the death of Yaakov. And yet it's called the life of Yaakov. By the way, we saw something very similar with Chai Sarah, which is the Parsha that describes the death of Sarah. And yet, Chaye is actually plural. It's talking about the lives of Sarah. You know what I mean? Because we live beyond just our present incarnation in this body. We've lived before. Hopefully we'll get it right this time, but maybe we'll live again. Whatever it is, but just the word Chaye is plural in terms of Chaye Sar. Okay? And then certainly we live, our soul that we have right now lives past its presence in our body. We live forever. So all of this is manifest. Now we say, when we're talking about, um, when talking about Yaakov Avinu and, and his quote-unquote dying, right? It's, it's interesting that it's called Vayechi. Um, we're talking about his life, not his death. And uh, the Talmud makes it even sort of stronger. It says, Yaakov Lomes, that, that Jacob never died. Okay, so how are we to understand that, right? But all of this we're going to get to in terms of our understanding of the white fire and the black fire. But, but, but let me just uh, add something else, which is that this Parsha is unique of all the Parshas in the Torah. It's called Parshas Stuma, okay? And, and the reason is, is because between every Parsha, and that's the Parsha is the weekly portion, and there are 53 portions, or rather 54 portions um, in the Torah, okay? And uh, so, so in between each portion of the Torah, and we read one a week, there's, uh, there's a white space in between each one. Okay, and, and, and what is that white space in between each Parsha? Well, Rashi, in the beginning, the first Rashi in Vayikra, Rashi gives us over something very, very fascinating, which is Rashi says that the white spaces in the Torah is when Hashem was giving the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu. Remember, he gave the Torah letter by letter, to Moshe Rabbeinu. When he was giving it to him, there were certain moments where God gave Moshe time to think and to contemplate and absorb. And those are the white spaces in the Torah. So, between every parsha, between every portion in the Torah, there are white spaces. There's one example in the entire Torah. And that's right where you see Vayechi. Vayechi, last week's Parsha, goes right into this week's Parsha, and there is no white space. Interestingly, interestingly, this Parsha is also the transition to the Jews becoming slaves in Egypt. And let's just approach it, let's make this a little bit more here and now, in terms of our daily lives, and then we're going to get back to the more kind of metaphysical aspects of this. But what is interesting to me about this is that the beginning of exile, which Vayechi, since this is the Parsha where exile begins, that there's no 
white space beforehand. In other words, what did we just say? Rashi says the white space in the Torah is when God gave Moshe time to think, or where Moshe took it upon himself to think, perhaps. In other words, exile begins when one stops thinking, when one's ability to contemplate their circumstances is taken away from them. When we become, if you will, reactive and just too busy to really know what we want to do. When life lives us instead of us living life. When the white space is taken away, when the ability to comprehend and fathom is taken away, then exile begins. So, but again, this is, or more in keeping with the paradigm we were going with moments before, this white space is also this heavenly aspect, right? This infinite aspect. And when we deprive ourselves from the infinite in our own lives, then exile really kicks in. You know, that's what Shabbos is. Shabbos is that one white space in our week where we're able to really absorb, right? Remember what the Ishbitzer Rebbe says about Shabbos. That there are two words I learned from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Ishbitzer. That there's Oneg and Simcha. Two different names for, uh, for very positive emotions. So Reb Shlomo uh, translated Simcha as um, joy and Oneg as bliss. Okay, so Oneg is the word that's associated with Shabbos. We talk about Oneg Shabbos, the bliss of Shabbos. So he says, what's the difference? Simcha, joy, is when God gives you something that you didn't have before. Oneg bliss is when you realize what it is that God has given you all along. When you have the eyes to see what it is that you've had all along. So on Shabbos, I'm telling you that Shabbos is like the white space, that ability to, comp- to, to, to contemplate, to think, as Rashi says. Also, this aspect of the white space being the heavenly aspect, right? The infinite aspect. Shabbos is that white space in our lives where we're given the eyes to see what it is that we have all along, instead of just rushing, 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 rushing. Now, interestingly, you say, okay, so Vayechi is the first word of this week's Parsha. What's the last word of the previous week's Parsha that got squeezed and, you know, like all the white space was taken away and it got bumped up next to Vayechi? Now, remember, Vayechi means to live. So you know what word, interestingly, gets pushed up right against Vayechi, which is portending the exile? The word Ma'od, which means very. You know, when you're, a lot of people are very busy, but completely unproductive. <laughs> Interestingly, the Ramchal points out that when, um, when Moshe Rabbeinu came to free the Jews, right? God sends him to Paro. What is Paro? Faro, what, what, what's the first thing that he does? He increases their workload. And this is the idea that if I can make them too busy, 
then they won't be able to grasp what's going on in terms of their own redemption. I'll double their work. I'll triple their work. God forbid they'll ask themselves, why am I here? Right? This is a question that all of us have to constantly ask ourselves. Why is there a world? Why am I here? Why am I born? And everything will come to stop you from asking yourself and thinking about these questions. This is the idea of ma'od, of the very, right? Coming to take away the white space, the ability to contemplate and to think and to grasp the infinite in your life right now, to have eyes to see what's actually there. Okay. So now I want to suggest something that's uh, just from me, okay? But I think based on what we've been saying, that it makes sense. So with your permission. You see, vayichi is a very interesting word. Again, it means to live. And we're talking about the life of Jacob. And it's especially interesting because, um, because it's describing the last 17 years of Jacob's life, which were good. Now, everybody knows that Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, had a very, very, very hard life. Very hard. And in fact, he tells Paro what a hard life that he had. You know, he's pretty open about it. But it says these last 17 years with his family together in Egypt, they were all together, he was reunited with with Yosef and everything like this, that these last 17 years were good. And, um, you know, the, the gematria of the word, uh, of the number 17 is tov. So we see it on another level, that it was tov these last 17 years. It was good. Okay. So now you want to hear something that I think is, it struck me like this. Vayechi is really kind of the same word as Vayehi. Just one tiny little difference. The He becomes a Ches. I'll explain in a moment, but let's just get the ideas down first and then we'll get into the details. You see, Vayehi, the Gomorrah says, Vayehi, when you see that at the beginning of a passage, portends something bad. That's what Vayehi means. Right? And Jacob's life up until this point, if you asked Jacob, Yaakov, right? He would tell you there's been a lot of Ayahi going on. <laughs> a lot of Ayahi, right? With Asav and Lovin and Yosef and all of the things like this. It's been very difficult. Okay? A lot of Ayahi. But isn't it interesting? The letter He is very, very close to the letter Ches, right? The letter He is like that. There's just a little space over here. And if you fill that in, the letter He becomes the letter Ches. So Vayehi becomes Vayehi. So what I want to say, and I'm going to explain this some more, is that the white fire, that little space of white fire in the hay got filled in with some black fire. 
the Vayihi became Vayichi. This heavenly, infinite aspect of the white fire actually became manifest and transformed Yaakov's life because he was able to grasp tranquility, peace, this heavenly light. He was able to finally be able to be a vessel for this level of tranquility. And he was able to become a vessel for this white light to become manifest in a real way and revealed in his, in his life that it became from white fire to black fire. The hay becomes a ches. Now I'll tell you something. Listen to this. We know when we talk about the name of Hashem, the yud and the hay and the vav and the hay, that that bottom hay stands for this world. That's machus. That's this world. That hay, the letter hay means this world. Okay? So what happens to that hay? It becomes a ches. Ches, we know, is the eighth letter of the alphabet. And eight represents that which is eternal. Right? And what did we just say? That we're talking about the death of Yaakov Avinu here, and yet we call it what? Vayechi, the life. Right? Because that's the eternal aspect is becoming revealed. Yaakov lomes. Yaakov didn't die. The Vayechi gets transformed into Vayechi, the hey, the temporal aspects with all the mortality of this world, hey means this world, gets transformed by the white fire becoming revealed into black fire to a ches, which is the number eight, which is eternal. Mortality becomes immortality. Hey becomes ches. The white fire becomes revealed. The world becomes perfected or we get a glimpse of the perfection that's coming here. So I want to say more than that, because if you look at Rashi's explanation for what happened to that white space before Vayahi, right? It says that Yaakov Avinu wanted to reveal when Mashiach is coming. So we're not just talking about hey and Ches, this world and the next world. Rashi himself says that this is the subject of the day right here at this spot. We're talking about the coming of Mashiach. Bless you. And that the reason why that white space was taken away was because the prophecy, his ability to communicate when the end of days are actually coming, was withdrawn from him. But you see from that context that the white space right there represents Mashiach. So I want to say the following. Where did that get filled in from? Where did the... the I'm saying that the hay became a ches, that that, that, that that white fire became black fire. Where did the white fire come from that became the black fire turning the hay into a ches? I want to say that was the white fire that disappeared before the word vayechi. Because that white fire right there is talking about coming of Mashiach. So where did it go? It went into the ches. You see, the Torah is filled with examples. Maisim avos simin labanim is the principle. 
The deeds of our fathers are signs for the children. This means that in so many occasions, our holy mothers and fathers fought these battles and they won, but the full extent of the victory has not been revealed yet. So, and you've got many examples of this. Avraham Avinu making it in Parshas Lech Lecha to the land of Israel. That in itself was like the victory is won. Avraham Avinu defeating the five kings. Again, these are all miniatures of future events that are going to take place. The Jews leaving Egypt and getting into Israel. Yaakov Avinu defeating the angel. All of these things are emblematic of the fact that victory is assured. Now go out and fight and win. (laughs) In other words, it's already been won. Now go out and fight and win. That in the highest levels, we've already accomplished what we need to accomplish. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to work to accomplish it ourselves. Again, victory is assured. The battle's already been won. Now go out, fight, and win. It sounds a little contradictory, but it isn't, because we're talking about levels. And so, what Yaakov Avinu was able to accomplish in his life was really just the ultimate fixing. They really talk about Yaakov Avinu really fixing the Chet of Adam HaRishon. The Kabbalists discuss this. And we see it, the hay turning into a Ches, that white fire which represents Mashiach before the word Vayechi, which disappeared, actually does become manifest in the name and the life of Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov Avinu did accomplish these things, but it hasn't been completely revealed in this world yet. That's still our job. Now I want to give you one more example, just so you see that methodologically, that I'm not pioneering something so new here. Okay? I just want to show you from the Vilna Gon where you see hey, a hey turning into a ches. Okay? Which is he points out something very cool, which is if you take the word matzah, right, which is mem tzadi hay, right? Keep your eye on the hay. <laughs> um, it's like, uh, and then you turn the letters around, matzah is the same letters as chametz. It's just, the Vilna Gon points out, that the hay turns into a ches. So what's interesting is, of course, we eat matzah on Passover, Pesach, and we absolutely don't want to eat chametz on Pesach. It's an iser karis. It's, it's, it was told that our souls get cut off. It's a very great offense to eat chametz on, on, uh, on, on Passover. Chametz meaning any bread products, right? Bread, cracker, cookies, any, any bread products, no good. But matzah, that's okay. So... So what's the difference between matzah and chametz? Because you see, it's, it's really the same letters. So the Vilna Gon says, you see, the hay, if you 
turns into a ches. There's just a little thing. If you just let the dough rise a little bit more, it becomes leavened. And it ceases to become matzah and it becomes chametz. So in other words, that little space between the hay and the ches is all the difference between matzah and chametz. That little amount of time. And what's interesting here is when it's talking about vayechi, which I want to say is the difference between the words vayehi and vayechi, it's also talking about those 17 years. Those 17 years is also a period of time turning the hay into a ches. Right? Those 17 good years, which were like the beautiful finish on Yaakov Avinu's life. Now just, just to tell you something, this is kind of the end of really what I wanted to say over here. And I want to make one more point and then we'll wrap it up. Because it's... Here you see something really interesting about time management. And how we can really go about turning white fire into black fire. Because that's what we want to do. We want to be able to take all this heavenly energy and make it manifest in the world, right? That's, that's what we want to do. So I think that the Vilna Goen is giving us a, a beautiful key here to how to do it. He's saying, you know, a few moments, matzo we know is like uh, medicine. It's totally holy food. It's like medicine for the soul. Matzah is fantastic, you know? And uh, it's so pure. It's so simple. It's just like bread and flour. And, and it's, it's the best. And it's just flat. It's just like real and straight. And, you know, bread is all puffed up and stands for ego and just kind of like, you know, you know, just false, falseness, you know. So, so we want to be matzah. And, and, and uh, so the Vilna Kohn is pointing out the fact that a few moments in time have the capacity to turn matzah into chametz, to turn this flat, very real, incredible thing into something puffed out and not what we want, something that stands for the opposite. And this gets into the whole idea, what does that mean, a few moments? So what I'd like to suggest is for all of us to appreciate in our lives, it's a concept in Torah called um, uh, uh, being bizrizis, or zrizaskite is what they talk about, which is hurrying, rushing to do something, rushing to do something right. And that there's actually a world of difference. Like a lot of times you say, and now I'm talking about levels right now. If someone isn't doing anything and they start to do something, then that's a very big thing and it has to be celebrated, right? But one has to also appreciate the fact that, that spiritually speaking, there's a very, very big difference between I'll do it when I get around to doing it and doing it and then saying, look, I did it and doing it right away. So you say, well, yeah, I guess there's a difference. In the end, the person still did it. So that's good, right? But have you ever seen like those game shows? Or they even have, I think, IQ tests, by the way, 
where how quickly you correctly answer the question actually affects your score, right? Sometimes, like, if you answer a question on a game show very quickly, you get a big thing, but the, the clock ticks down, right, or clicks up, whatever it is, you get less. The same thing is true with mitzvahs. By the way, I, I heard something amazing from Rabbi Gedalia Fleer about Rabbi Ari uh, Kaplan. Uh, Rabbi Kaplan, of course, you know, the author of dozens of, you know, life-changing books and just incredible, was a mathematical genius. And, and I heard from Rabbi Fleer that his genius was so great in math that they couldn't measure it. And the reason why they couldn't measure it is because he would answer the questions as soon as they were asked. So they had no way of gauging his level of greatness. Right? So now, you know, I'll give you an example just because it's the first one that pops into my head, but there's probably millions of better examples, so I apologize. But I was trying to get myself out of bed like a week ago, and, you know, I was just kind of just waking up feeling just uninspired or lackadaisical. And I go to a minion uh, often that has 10 men. We're lucky to get 10 men, actually. And, um, you know, there's a certain prayer, the Kaddish prayer, that you need 10 men to say. And I was just lying in bed, and I, I just couldn't get myself out of bed exactly. And I thought to myself, you know what? If, if I take another couple minutes to get out of bed, there's a Kaddish that could be said in this world, which is, you know, just extolling the greatness of the name of God. You say, which is talking about the greatness of God. And it says, this actually, this utterance is so great that if you say it loudly and with total kavana, complete intention, that, that it has the power to rip up a decree of 70 years of a bad life. I mean, it's a really, it's, a, it's an awesome thing to say. You know, but we say it quite a number of times during a normal davening. And so people, it's very easy to become desensitized to the greatness of saying such a thing. And so I was just lying in bed and thinking, there's a good chance that I'm going to be the 10th man. And there's a Kaddish that won't be able to be said unless I show up. Now, if I show up a few minutes later, there are other Kaddishes that will be able to be said. And maybe I won't even be the 10th man. And maybe they're going to be able to say it anyway. But I just thought of, that, that was meaningful to me because, because it was so concrete. Of You say, well, I went to Minion anyway. But here's an example, a, a very concrete example of how things can be different if you wait. So the end of the story is, when I had that thought, I got out of bed right away. And I got to shul, and I was the 10th man. And we were able to say it. So, so there are many better examples than the one I just gave you. Many better examples. Let's say someone needs some money. 
And you go, okay, I'm thinking about it. Maybe I'll give him some money or whatever it is. You know what? I am going to give him some money, but I really don't want to give him the money. But I, okay, I'm going to do it, but do it in my time, whatever it is. So maybe you give it to them a day later or a week later or a month later. That person may have been living literally a different life if they had gotten it a week sooner or, or a month sooner. Literally a different life with a different opportunity. You know, I'll, 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 I'll tell you a, a story. There's a story about someone who was a, a new rabbi in a, in a town. This totally is a true story. I don't remember any of the names. And right before Shabbos, like a, really like, you know, just, just, just moments before Shabbos, he calls in one of the people who live there, and again, he's the new rabbi, and he says to him, he says, can you lend me like whatever it is, like a, I don't remember what the sum is, a large sum of money. And the, the, the person goes, I, I can, but I mean, it's, it's going to be Shabbos in like a few minutes. What do you need it for? And, and, and he says to him, and don't worry, he says, I'm going to pay you right after Shabbos. <laughs> pay you right back. So it's strange, right? So he, but he gives him the money and then he pays him right back after Shabbos. And then the next week he does the same thing. And he says, fine. He says, what, what's going on? He says, listen, I want to tell you something. He says, I'm, I'm a poor guy. I haven't got any money. But all you people are rich. And on Shabbos, I want to be a rich man talking to other rich men. It's going to affect how I communicate to you. So there's a humorous aspect to it. But what I'm trying to say is, is that it, him having the cash sooner or at that moment changed who he was for him anyway. And he was able to act in a different way. There are so many different things. If you think of, if you think of in your life, if I had left two minutes later, I wouldn't have met that person. Right? How many times, meetings, life-changing meetings, maybe if not for you, for other people, because you met them, maybe your life didn't change so much, but maybe someone else's life changed so much, or maybe their life changed so much. You see what it is, spiritually speaking, we get a little deeper here, but now I'm really actually communicating what, what I'm trying to tell you, is, is that There are different portals, different portals, different revelations of reality. And if you do something faster, that requires more effort. And it says, to the effort goes the reward. So now, if you actually push yourself, and it's harder to do, God opens a portal for you where you're able to interface with a different level of reality and different set of opportunities. I remember the night I met my wife. It was a singles party, and I really didn't want to go. I, I had to really push myself to go. And I imagine if I hadn't pushed myself to go to this party that I was convinced was going to be a chore and be terrible, 
I wouldn't have met at least my wife that night. Who knows? You know? So, so when we wait then, we become a little bit more like chametz. And now I'm all kind of accessing a, a, a you know, like, kind of like, can you imagine you, you want to go and pick the fruit from a field? But it's already been harvested. So you're kind of looking for an apple over here and a grape over there. Someone's already been through the field. <laughs> or if you get there and you're the first one and there's, all, oh, guys, all apples, you know, I, my, more baskets, more baskets, because there's so many opportunities. So this is, this is the concept and this, this we live with this. This is why reality is so, um, so uh, deceptively, deceptively simple or deceptively complex, how you, however you want to look at it. Because it kind of looks like everything's going on. Oh, he'll wait, she'll wait, they'll wait. But it's, 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 it's changing all the time. It's changing all the time. And if you can get in early, right? You rouse yourself, you get in early, all of a sudden God puts a different set of scenery in front of you. So again, let's just, let's just value time. Because life is short. We should all live long. But even if we live long, life is still short. And to literally seize the moment, to literally attack the moment, to attack the day, to attack the opportunities that are present. And to finally understand this whole concept of white fire and black fire, to be able to understand that the Torah, God forbid you shouldn't think, is, is just this two-dimensional page but that the Torah is black fire on white fire, and that that white fire is infinite realms and infinite light, and that our job is to take that light and to bring it and to reveal it in this world toward the end where we can finally see written the words, Ki se Hashem Yudke Vavke, where we can see the complete revealed throne of God in this world.